0: You can be turning to Acts chapter 19. We'll be picking up uh, the story. I know this is surprising to you. It never happens, but right where we left off. (laughs) Never happens except for every Sunday. Um, And this is right after what I had theoretically called a second Gentile Pentecost. If You were here last week. Um... I theorized last week that Pentecost, not so much using the term as the festival, but Pentecost being used as a term to denote a time where the Holy Spirit seems to fall dramatically out on people as they prophesy or speak in tongues, as we first saw in Acts chapter 2. And then we have these emphatic bookmarks. Throughout the book of Acts, we remember in Acts 1.8 where Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I was suggesting that bookmarks of these different phases of the Great Commission uh, can be seen in Pentecost, again, again Acts chapter 2, this bench-setting moment, if you will. It's dramatic, well-recorded. The Spirit falls out on people. God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, says Luke, who are visiting Jerusalem. They're witnesses to this. And then, like a preview um, to the ends of the earth with all these people here, right? All these people in Jerusalem. But then last week I covered that these lowercase Pentecosts seemed to happen again and again. It happened in Samaria, Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Peter and John came down and prayed over some already believing Samaritans. However, when they prayed over them, then they received the Holy Spirit. It happened again in a Gentile's house, the Roman centurion Cornelius. Although that was still in Judea, Acts 10:44 through 48. We were told even before he was baptized, the Spirit poured out on him. Well, he got a Holy Spirit baptism. But then finally last week it happened again here in Ephesus, outside of the traditional Holy Land, signifying once and for all that God's witness is on the move to the ends of the earth. And we saw... Uh, as we saw this other lowercase, Pentecost again on 12, unnamed Ephesian disciples. But this is just the beginning of ministry in a church that's going to become kind of the next big deal in the history of the church. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for now, I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Word of God now that you got your Bibles all opened up and situated. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 20, so I hope you're able to stand for a while. Then Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But when some of them stubbornly refused to believe and publicly malign the way, Paul took his disciples and left the synagogue to conduct daily discussions in the hall of Tyrannus, if you're looking for another name for a church. <laughs> this continued for two years. So that everyone who lived in the province of Asia, Jews and Greeks alike, heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and the diseases and evil spirits left them. Now there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists who tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those with evil spirits. They would say, I bind you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. Eventually, one of the evil spirits answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. The attack was so violent that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus in fear came over all of them, so the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many who had believed now came forward, confessing and disclosing their deeds. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books and burned them in front of everyone. When the value of the books was calculated, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. So the word of the Lord powerfully continued to to spread and prevail. Why don't we go ahead and pray? Father, today uh, your word takes us to a time, place, and culture that maybe many of us are not familiar with. Maybe some of us are more familiar with than we want to be. Whatever the case is, I pray that your spirit would be faithful to take us there to understand why your Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write these words so that we might receive them. Father, would you use them for the building up of your church, for building up our faith, Would you use them to call us to repent where we might need to, to be comforted where we might need to be, to change our perspective, to have our minds renewed. Whatever the case is, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be the one speaking, not I. And I pray that we would all be open to your Spirit working in our lives and obedient and yielded to what he would do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There was one last part of my theory last week that I didn't rehash, but i that was the fact that there were 12 Ephesian uh, disciples present for that last Pentecost of Acts. There was no more speaking in tongues mentioned in the book of Acts after this. But I thought about 12. That's a significant number as the Bible is no stranger to symbolism in numbers. Twelve means, or meant in the Bible at least, divine leadership, divine government. Uh, There were twelve tribes of Israel. There were twelve apostles. And I said last week that while tribes and the apostles had been named, these twelve disciples in Ephesus, um, out in the proverbial end of the earth to use... Uh, Jesus language, go to the ends of the earth, are not named because they could easily be you or me. And I said that the fact is, is that the power or the government, the leadership of the church, no longer knows 12 offices anywhere, but rather leadership is through Christ himself residing in his people worldwide. Yet I also add here now that there is significance in this power shift to the Ephesian disciples. Because we are about to see that Ephesus kind of becomes an unsung central locale for the church. Um, I don't know about you, but when I think of locations in the New Testament, I primarily think of, well, yeah, Jerusalem, Nazareth, Bethlehem. And then I just kind of think, well, the general Middle East... But I've never meditated over the prominence of, say, the city of Antioch until I stopped to study Acts, as I have for this series. Antioch, as I have mentioned and reminded us a few weeks ago, this was the sending church. This was the church that Barnabas and Paul ministered at, where they were sent out from, as well as Silas and Paul sent out from. It's where Paul had just returned to again before heading out here to Ephesus. It's no doubt the biggest missionary sending church of its time. And the difference between it and uh, Jerusalem in the Christian political sense could probably be likened to the difference between uh, D.C. and New York City, right? Uh, The latter is technically not the American capital, Just not technically, but we don't doubt its influence in our nation. So it was with Jerusalem and Antioch until Ephesus. Ephesus was the fourth largest city of the Roman Empire by its time. Uh, You had the, it was the capital of the province of Asia. Just to confuse you, think of Turkey. So Asia in the Bible is usually referring to the Roman Empire name for basically where Turkey is now. So in terms of size, Ephesus is behind Rome, Alexandria, Egypt, and then Antioch. And then there's Ephesus. It's a powerhouse city. It's going to become a big deal in the Christian community. Paul has a son in the faith, as he calls him, Timothy. Timothy would minister in Ephesus. It's believed that the Apostle John saw Ephesus as his home church years later, and we're going to uncover today some pagan religion taking place here. Now, we heard about Paul addressing the Athenians about all of their idols a few weeks ago, Athens, but here we see Paul butt heads with it. Indeed, there is a clash of powers happening here, and it's going to be in four parts if you have your outlines in front of you, we're going to be talking about the power of preaching, the power of testimony, the power of evil, and the power of Jesus' name. If only we would sing a bunch of hymns about Jesus' name. First, we look into the power of preaching here in verses 8 through 10. It says, Then Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But when some of them stubbornly refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, Paul took his disciples and left the synagogue to conduct daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that everyone who lived in the province of Asia, Jews and Greeks alike, heard the word of the Lord. Some of my commentary suggested that the three months that Paul spent in the synagogue was notably long, an exception to the norm. Only except whenever I went back and looked through most cases, I don't think we've ever been given definite time spans as to all the synagogues he preached at in earlier towns. I think he could have easily put in three months or more somewhere else. What we do know about Ephesus is that Paul had been invited to stay longer when he passed through Ephesus on the way back from his second missionary journey, so Acts 18.20. Furthermore, there's this gent named Apollos who had been in Ephesus who kind of perhaps laid laid a more of a foundation for Paul. So it's possible that Paul came and he preached the gospel a little bit longer in the synagogue than other places. But what happened in most cities... In Paul's missionary journeys, happen here. Some of them stubbornly refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. And I really like Luke's wording here. They stubbornly refused to believe. The actual words might say they were hardened and they were disbelieving. But even the words behind disbelieving would be to disobey or to rebel or to refuse to conform. In other words, they were American. So, yes, it is a stubborn refusal to believe because, one, if thinking straight, shouldn't be able to do anything but believe the gospel when they hear it, in my mind. Jesus, arguing with the likes of these folks, stubborn, unbelieving Jews, lays the blame entirely on unbelievers. He says, yet, you refuse to come to me to have life. We forget this, and as for unbelievers who are in this category, Paul would say that they are deceived, Romans 1, 18, and 19, invite you to read that later. But they think it's not a, they think it's really not a matter of their personal stubbornness or volition around refusing. They deceive themselves under their anger and animosity against Christianity, and they might excuse it with, there's not enough evidence. That's just too wacky. That doesn't make sense, but it's really none of these things. It's really none of these things. If the gospel wasn't real to non-believers or to unbelievers, I don't think they would be so abhorrently against it. (laughs) Moved to anger by it. The animosity is such that we read that Paul took his disciples and left the synagogue to conduct daily discussions in the lecture hall, now the Greek word looks like school, because that's where our English word comes from, of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, a flattering name meaning tyrant. Paul wondered if this guy was really named that, or if actually that's what his students called him, (laughs) or the town, (laughs) we don't know, just how Jewish rabbis collected students, so pagans would often acquire schools by having one singer, one Single teacher instruct many students. So Paul is renting space for his church though. That's what it amounts to. The almighty Ephesian church begins this way, being ran out from other, from a synagogue, setting up shop off hours in another space. Even so, here's a big verse that requires some intaking. This continued for two years So that everyone who lived in the province of Asia, all of Turkey, Jews and Greeks alike, heard the word of the Lord. Like how many of us saw that modest beginning and didn't think of that outcome? The Christian center of Ephesus, and by Ephesus we hear about the reaching of ancient Turkey. This is the power of preaching. The power of the gospel. All of the churches you read about in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, it could have been by these simple efforts here because all of those churches are in ancient Turkey. It could have been uh, about being about ran out of a synagogue, forced to preach in a lecture hall. Furthermore, Ephesus being a central location, no doubt many people are making pilgrimages to Ephesus to a famous temple of Diana, And Paul says in verse 27, which is where I think Susan gets her prayers from, she didn't make this connection, but Paul says he's not one to shrink back from witnessing. (laughs) So I kind of imagine Paul, oh, you're coming to see Diana. Well, let me tell you about a real God. (laughs) Well, maybe he's a little bit more tactful. But Paul's associates, Silas, Timothy, Priscilla, and Aquila, and whoever else becomes believers, no doubt commit to the ministry, they're no doubt helping the Ephesian church grow its ministry here. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 19 suggest that Paul is a bi-vocational minister as well. So, he's likely still tent-making to support himself and his companions. Verse 31 tells us that Paul is pulling in some long hours. So, I have to imagine if he has to work many days, no doubt he's giving many nights to pastoral care and preaching. God is also testifying to Paul's ministry, though, showing in a very pagan, mystical, spiritual land that the Jesus that Paul preaches is the real deal. We go on to the power of testimony, and we read verses 11 and 12. God did extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. I want you to note Luke's explanation, the source of the miracle. God did this, verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and the diseases and evil spirits left them. Now, if you were here last week, I made mention the fact that Paul was kind of overseeing a Pentecost kind of verified his ministry, right? The stuff that that Peter was overseeing in the first parts of Acts, Pentecost Sunday, Samaritan Pentecost, uh, Pentecost at Cornelius' house. Now we get the picture that Paul seems to have the same office of Peter as if he's overseeing Pentecost. And now this is happening, what we just read about. You know, Paul isn't called the apostle of the Gentiles for nothing, right? He is right out here in Ephesus, Gentile land, and the gospel, Jesus' first church, is moving forward. These sorts of healings from just clothes or objects like this isn't new, actually. Luke records for us in his eighth chapter of his gospel account of a a woman who just barely touched Jesus' robe and the crowd of people, and then she's being healed, although the account shows us a Jesus who has to ask Who touched me? Right? Like, oops, I healed someone. (laughs) Luke tells us early on that, that people are hoping for at least Peter's shadow to fall on them. And all those coming to Peter were being healed. Not because of Peter, not because of Jesus' robe, but because of God's power. The power of the Messiah. So it is with Paul here, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons... Now, there is debate, because we have to debate about every single word in the Bible, but it is proposed that these are actually the sweatbands and the work aprons that Paul wears while he's tent making. And if these things that had touched them were taken to the sick, and the diseases and the evil spirits left them. Now, we no doubt see how some faith traditions come up with the ideas that they do, relics and statues and Catholicism, prayer cloths and Pentecostalism and so forth. And I'm not speaking on judgment on any of those traditions whenever I reinforce here again, and as those traditions reinforce, that it is God's power doing these things here. I also want to reinforce here that I believe these miracles are happening primarily for the sake of testimony. God wants the Gentiles to see and know that the God that Paul preaches about, the gospel, having just been inaugurated within their century, that Paul preaches about is real. Now, do or can these things still happen today? Sure, I'm not adverse to that. God doesn't need my uh, say-so to do whatever He wants to do. However, I would caution with the words of Jesus, a wicked and a adulterous generation demands a sign. What I'm saying is when all we do is follow God, or if our faith is only built by demanding God to do the supernatural or to put on a show, that doesn't come from a faithful, devoted heart. (laughs) I'll give you an illustration. I remember being in fourth grade, maybe middle school, and I remember lying in my bed, and I had had a, a rigorous day, perhaps lots of, activity in PE that day. Maybe I played outside a lot. Uh, I don't know or remember the circumstances, but I do remember praying something very simple. I was pretty sore. Muscles were tense for a little guy. I was exhausted. And I remember asking God for peace and relief throughout my whole body. And as soon as I prayed for it, I received it Uh, instantly. I, I felt something in my body just completely relax, and I went to bed pretty quickly. Now, have I asked God for similar things since then only to receive nothing? Sure. But I remember when He said yes. And it is that that I testify of. It's that that left a mark on me as a kid. It may have been the first instantly answered prayer I ever received, but it told me then, and it should remind me always, He's real. He's here. He answers prayers. If the power of the gospel is combined with the power of God's miraculous testimony, then people certainly don't have any reason to stubbornly refuse. When Jesus said that a wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign, he was saying it in a culture that did such things. Now, the, the American enjoys the odd parlor trick, and all one has to do is take a look at the entire genres of movies or reality TV shows to find out there are people out there still seeking signs. We find in Ephesus some Jews, nonetheless, adding some good old-fashioned Harry Potter-type magic to their religion. Uh, We see in verse 13, now there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists. And we'll just break here and say, wow, I didn't know there was such a brand of people. (laughs) Itinerant Jewish exorcists, in fact, one of my commentaries, reluctantly apparently, disclosed that some of the Jews some Jews of the New Testament world were commonly associated with exorcism, using Hebrew incantations and chemical formulas to promote their craft. Josephus reported that even Solomon developed secretive powers for expelling demons, but that seems questionable, to which I asked myself, why is that questionable? because Solomon was such a glowing beacon of righteousness already. I mean, I I don't know if Josephus is... I know Josephus is not writing down gospel uncontested truth, but my commentator never went into the reasons as to why this possibility is to be contested. But among Jews and Gentiles, this was a thing. If we're reading Acts, we know of Simon the sorcerer earlier on in the book. There was another man leading, uh, one man named Bar-Jesus on the island of Cyprus in Paul's first missionary trip. And like Simon the sorcerer did when the gospel came to his town in Samaria, which Simon tried to exploit it, so these itinerant Jewish exorcists in Ephesus tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those with evil spirits, they would say, I bind you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims seven sons of Siva, a Jewish uh, chief priest were doing this. Now, some would say that this is actually their entertaining name, seven sons of Siva, uh, seven being perfection. The name of Siva is actually not a recorded name of a Jewish high priest at any time from any record. So it could be that this is their entertaining name. It's entertainment. Oh, the seven sons of Siva are coming to town. And because while there may have been a few exciting so-called Jewish exorcists and sorcerers, sorcerers by and large, like our day and age, many people aren't convinced. It is why in the gospel accounts when Jesus shows up and actually heals people and exercises demons, Luke records for us a, re- a reaction. They say, such as Luke four thirty-six, all the people were overcome with amazement and asked one another, what is this message? With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. It's almost like they, they don't, don't see it every day. <laughs> people know real power when they see it. And they know counterfeit power if they think about it. It's why, and I won't go name any names. And I remember John Pitts before he passed away, uh, September 2020, and COVID started happening. He would always say, well, why aren't all these so-called faith healers alive in a well? How come they're not going from town to town getting rid of COVID for us? (laughs) John was being a little facetious as he was. (laughs) But indeed, I wonder why. Verse 15, eventually, one of the evil spirits answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? This kind of reminds me of the witch of Endor. Uh, If you remember that story in 1 Samuel, we'll actually probably cover that story next time we're in Samuel. But the premise is this. Samuel, the prophet, is dead. The Philistines are closing in on King Saul. Uh, Long since not Saul has not been following God. He's been too worried and too tied up with chasing the true king of Israel, David, all around the Israeli countryside. That will keep you busy. And now he's about to lose his kingdom to some Philistines. If only he had God's ear again. If only he had the prophet Samuel again. Well, there is a way to see Samuel isn't there, he thinks. Though he had outlawed and banned witches and mediums, he just dons a disguise and seeks out an illegal witch in Indore, And he says, hey, bring up Samuel. I want to talk to him. She goes about her business. And then 1 Samuel 12, 28 says, But when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out in a loud voice. It's like she didn't expect it. (laughs) I just did parlor tricks, but here's Samuel. Oh, no. The Jewish exorcists were trying to bind spirits by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Uh, This was a common belief that if you got the right name and you said the right words, you'd execute the right magic. Spell books and whatnot. We'll talk about that in a minute. Thought it was interesting. One of my commentaries brought up that a papyrus scroll from this very period was found and is now in Paris, which contains the words, I adjure you by the God of the Hebrews, Jesus. <laughs> interesting tidbit. But they thought it was in the names. And I'm just going to say it. We Christians do it too sometimes. We do it with our simple beliefs in, Did you say the Lord's Prayer? or people ending prayers like I do in the name of Jesus. Sometimes we do this for the wrong reasons, saying in the name of Jesus or in your name, we pray. If we say it simply out of routine and belief that those are the magical words, right, as if those are the three numbers for long distance, we get into heaven. That's that's not how it goes. That's not what it's for. When Jesus said, ask for anything you want in my name and you shall have it, he didn't give us a credit card made out of words to ask or do something in the name of someone else is to be their ambassador. I cannot say curse you in the name of Jesus. Never mind, that's probably blasphemous, but also it's not in Jesus's character or will to curse whomever I desire. To ask for something in the name of Jesus is to ask for something within the character and will of Jesus. And Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, he's not stupid. He reads minds, he reads hearts. So when these charlatans start trying to use God's name for greedy means or bad means or to put on a show to say, hey, we got the power that Paul has. Not only does God not act on their behalf. But the evil spirits are not moving either. They're not fooled. They say, Jesus, I know and I know about Paul, but who are you like? That's got to send chills down their backs. Then verse 16, the man with the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. The attack was so violent that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. This stuff is real. I think I have told you this before, I, I used to watch a very uplifting Christian Christ centered documentary show called My Ghost Story <laughs> and uh, had to put all those prefaces on there. It's been a couple of years now, uh, but it was like almost like teens telling ghost stories. Only it was the 21st century and most of them were adults telling the story, if not all the time. But sometimes they had camera footage. Sometimes there were actual tapings of these idiots who go into houses that are haunted and everyone knows it. And things like evil, demonic voices would be captured on audio and scrapes and physical violent attacks would happen on their backs and necks and arms. And the idiots would say at the end of their story, I can't wait to go back. (laughs) This is the power of evil. Not only do people stubbornly refuse the gospel, but sometimes they're so prone to return to evil as a dog returns to its vomit. So a fool repeats his folly. Thankfully, some in our story aren't foolish. They're not returning to their vomit. They're not repeating folly. We read in verse 17. This became known to all the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus. Fear came over all of them. So the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. See, what the counterfeits did only strengthened the message, the gospel, the proclamation that Paul brought. Remember, demons even said it. I know Jesus. I know Paul. You're not associated with them. As if if Jesus or Paul were in this picture, the desired effect might be achieved here. <laughs> People shouldn't play with this power. You know something I never expected, and I, I don't ever remember doing this myself, uh, is noting that sometimes a child who shall remain nameless <laughs> remain nameless, playing with toys and bringing God into the picture. Now I remember coming up with stories as a kid as I played with action figures and whatnot, but I noted something that this nameless child would say. <laughs> This guy is mean. He doesn't know God. He's not nice to God. And I suppose making the action figure the villain of the story. But I stopped him and said, buddy, let's not joke around about this. We don't even pretend about these things. He asked why to which I responded, because the Bible says God is holy and sacred. He's not something we just play around with like this. And this is always true. We, We see sins so easily in kids, but eventually... We just see the same sins in us, just more deviously done. We have more disguises on, as it were. How many of us don't honor the name of God? How many of us just play with his power as if it's something that we could harness? I hope not. I hope it's not done as much in so-called serious Christian circles. But I've met so many people, half Christian, I suppose we can call them, who live in this sort of transaction relationship with God, will put in a good word for God for me. I tithe more this month. I hope he pays out for me. I really want this job. Or I really want this relationship. Or I really want this car. Or I really want this uh, bill paid. And I put in my time with you, God. You and I think that if we just pulled the right levers or if we swing the right bat, we'll hit the pinata and candy will pop out. That's not how this works. I'm sure we love if that happens to us by other people, right? Hey, Kevin, I took you out for pizza the other day and I sent a package coffee to your doorstep. But uh, now I have a favor. So I have I buttered you up sufficiently enough? Why? No, you haven't jerk. (laughs) You can work on your language (laughs) for the Jewish magicians had the audacity to think that they could harness God's power with just dialing the right names. That's not how it works. And when they understood that, brutally, and they were, they were contrasted against Paul, who knew, loved, and served, and revered the word of God. Paul had already been stoned, imprisoned, suffered on behalf of Christ. That's what brought honor to the name of Jesus. Many who had believed now came forward, confessing and disclosing their deeds. Now, remember, this word got out about Christ and Paul, primarily because of the Jewish exorcists and their humiliation, the hands of the demons. One of my commentators said rightly fear often produces conviction and creates honesty. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books, that is their books of spells, you know, the right names and formulas. If you want a cheeseburger, say this and burned them in front of everyone. When the value of the books was calculated, the total came to about 50,000 drachmas. One suggests here that the equivalent is about six million dollars. Americans spend money on gas, entertainment and fast food and football. I know I haven't forgotten but apparently Ephesians spent it on spellbooks. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord powerfully continued to spread and prevail. Also, another thing that happened earlier on in the book of Acts just seemed more frequently in the earlier chapters. But there were always these statements and summaries about the growing of the church. So we also see one here. It shows us again continuity that Paul is just part of the same ministry, just continuing the same ministry. And also, interestingly, these statements seem to happen after the gospel has been hindered in some way. Um, One of the biggest things that happened is, I believe, a statement came after the persecution that started after Paul or Saul. We read a few verses later and the church continued to grow. (laughs) So after we had this interesting scenario where Paul's ministry was kicked out of the synagogue, the ministry was exploited, some evil spirits uh, beat up some people and the word of god continue to spread and prevail. <laughs> I have a simple, quick, profound, concluding challenge for you. Do you honor the name of Jesus to repent where you need to repent? These people heard the gospel and they collectively burnt 6 million dollars. Sin can be expensive what is the expense as far as you or i am concerned where is it that you sin or i sin sometimes all it takes is a look at our schedule last week all it takes is a look at our bank account and i mean that both ways where should we where should we be spending money that we aren't sometimes it requires a look at our relationships and what does any of these things say about our honoring the Lord Jesus Christ? And if we're convicted with that, will conviction lead to honesty? Will conviction lead to repentance? Will conviction lead to humbling ourselves before Christ and receiving his power from his Holy Spirit to repent? To reorient our schedule so that it is honoring to Christ to reorient our checkbook so it does honor Christ to reorient our relationships, seeking forgiveness where it is necessary, engaging in reconciliation where it is necessary, seeking to receive those whom we've told ourselves that we would never receive because that's what Jesus does. He just tells some people, no, Uh uh-uh. OK, maybe he doesn't <laughs> so that we might honor. The name of Jesus. You know, all the scripture and all the Holy Spirit can do. Is present what needs to be done in our lives. But we are the ones who must yield to what the Holy Spirit says so that we might receive the Holy Spirit and go further in our walk with him, and we might obey and do what he calls us to do. As they say in another great Christian movie, The Matrix, I can only show you the door. You have to be be the one who walks through it. Let's pray. Father, the name of this message I've entitled is playing with power. It's kind of like playing with fire. Help us to not minimize you. Help us to not see you as perhaps these Jewish entertainers saw you as some power to be harnessed. Help us to know that you want to go much deeper, bigger, and larger with us, that you are sacred and holy, but you are personable. Father, you are to be trusted in as a confidant and friend, you are to be submitted to as an authority and leader. Father, you unashamedly want into all parts of our lives. You want to be in our checkbook, you want to be in our relationships. You want to be in our schedules. You want to be in our hearts so you can root out what has taken place in the fall. So that you can take out all the sin, all the disobedience, all the darkness we seem to stupidly desire. Father, help us to submit to you, to yield to you. Help us to trust that whenever we seek forgiveness... We might be humiliated at times, but it's always for our benefit and our good. And help us to also realize that all the power in our repentance and obedience is not going to come to us from us. It's going to come from your Holy Spirit. Father, many of us say that's too hard. I can't do it. But we don't have to do it. Your Holy Spirit is the one who works in us. And the last time I checked, we do believe in a supernatural Holy Spirit who empowers us, who gives us the grace and the power to do each and everything you call us to do. Father, I pray that none of us would let this time slip through our hands, that we wouldn't walk away convicted and then be glad we have a football game to watch later so we can forget about it. <laughs> but I hope I hope instead that we would indeed take to heart what your Holy Spirit has been talking to us about, that we would seek to repent. Not just say, "Okay, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again, but to seek to right the wrongs, to do what needs to be done. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be obedient. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.